A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Controls Tour. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then right. I did come up with uh, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is U-Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So... Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972, all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never Mm. heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hello, Guy. Electro Pioneers. Electro Pioneers, indeed. Um, who very much modelled themselves on craft work, didn't they? But had a very innate pop sort of innocence about their sound, didn't they? Yes, they did. And I, I just sort of. You know, I'd love to know what the timeline is because obviously there's a lot of bands that that changed. I mean, in a way, they had the same philosophy as punk, right? It was a sort of DIY, but the instruments changed. Yeah, and uh, you know, instead of the guitar, it was it was now whatever little synths or tapes they can get hold of. Obviously, Joy Division. There was all this stuff going on in in Manchester. Then there's Liverpool, obviously, with these guys, OMD. But I think really, if I was going to say who was first, I'd say it was probably Human League. Yeah, probably. But you're but you're right. But even talking to when we were talking to Midjour, there was that thing of people suddenly realizing that you could do all this stuff with a synth. You know, I think it's when the first affordable little monophonics turned up. Hello, you know, this is yeah, our yeah. first album. Yeah, you know? that's you. That's you, right? Yeah. Exactly. With, with the Blitz down there. So you know, obviously, our big influence. Would you is... would you have been playing them down the Blitz? Actually, OMD's first single came out after the Blitz. Had Oh, moved okay. on. I, I thought it was seventy nine. So uh, yeah, I think it just missed that. I th- Human League was definitely being played, being boiled. Was definitely a mute records, you know, and um, warm leatherette. But obviously, you know, there was a there was a zeitgeist, you know, and and it was yeah. probably Kraftwerk and uh, the German bands that we were all listening to, and of course via Bowie. Always, you know, it's yeah, either the always. Beatles or Bowie, isn't it? Yeah, it's true. And then because I remember, I I used to bump into them. Or I don't know if Andy will remember from you know that that there was that whole early eighties TV circuit that we were all on all over Europe, mm. and it was just like you know they were the they were the people you saw everywhere. Yeah, and of course we were all very competitive at the time, so we were like we we're turning our nose up at everything. But listening back yeah. to these albums, you know, especially you know that first album is so ahead of its time in many it's, ways. Yeah. And the pe- would the Pet Shop Boys have ever existed if it hadn't been for Souvenir? I think you're absolutely right that there's the big tip of the hat from the Pet Shop Boys. And fantastically, we've got our prog reference because produced by Mike Howlett. 
Yeah. Gong. Yeah. Gong. I mean, do you know what I did? None more prog. None more prog. But you know what I didn't know is is Howlett played in the band with Sting and the original Police. That's right. That's right. Strontium 90 or something. Strontium 90. I can't. I don't know what their music is. I've no idea. No, neither do I. No, that's a rabbit hole for us and our listeners to go down. (laughs) Anyway, Andy McCluskey, let's get him on. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. But it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it and doing this podcast. It, it's uh, it's fabulous. Well, I get the feeling that us three should go for a pint. That's what I think. I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah, get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Keep on rocking! Whoa, hello. Hello. Andy. Andy. Right, I can see, but I can't hear you. What is the mess? Oh, you're you're, you're yeah. the techiest musician we've ever had on. No, I'm the least techiest <laughs> musician. Humphreys is the techie one. <laughs> um, I've just had to disconnect my headphones, but I'll, I'll listen to you on audio. I've got this mic. Uh, I believe you want me to record myself on That's this. Nice. Where are you, Andy? I'm Guy. We met several times back in the 80s on the TV circuit, but I doubt you'd remember. Yes, hi, Guy. Where are you coming from? Uh, I'm up in... Um, Merseyside, on, on the other side of the river. The Wirral. The supposedly posh side. You stayed loyal. Yeah, the Wirral. Or have you always have you always been there? Have you always been there? Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is actually, literally, I if I go to the end of my garden and look down towards the Irish Sea, there's a gigantic pub in a place called Mel's. And I grew up behind this pub about three miles away, so I can oh, see where I came from. <laughs> that's like Bruce Springsteen, isn't it? He said, you know, he said, I wrote Born to Run. I live five minutes from where I, where I was born. He hasn't been <laughs> So where did you guys meet? Do you remember meeting him? He always says that to people. It was when he, I was with Ice House. Ice House when he was with Ice House. TV shows around you. Yeah, oh, but I think, I, I think it might have been Paul, not you, who I met in, this is peak 80s, Gary, you'll love this. I think I met you in Crowler, the clothes shop. And I... Scott Crowler. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we decided to bin off the kind of boring bank clerk look. And Peter Savile, our designer, said, OK, if you really want to change your look, you've got to go to this shop, Scott yeah. Crowler. It's like, you know, clothes made out of your grease curtains. And we went from one extreme to the other. Because I in there and then bumped into you, I think, the next week at Top of the Pops. And you went, oh, hello, this is a far cry from the bright lights of Dover Street. <laughs> <laughs> we, we should start by mentioning da- a Dazzle Ships, isn't that? The, you've got a 40th anniversary edition coming out, have you? We have indeed. Yes, I think it's out on the 31st of March. I mean, it's it's quite remarkable that actually 40 years after the event, we are celebrating an album that virtually destroyed our career. <laughs> so it's uh, out time. Because it was change. pretty experimental, wasn't it, at the time? Well, it didn't seem so to us because we. Um, it's blueprint really nothing's ever created in the vacuum it's blueprint was radioactivity by Kraftwerk, which had songs interspersed with little kind of audio snippets and bits of radio and stuff so to us it it already made sense but think at the time people it it stands up really well stuff like the radio prague and things like that it's it's gorgeous and it's incredibly sophisticated sounds because it 
com- compared to the sort of sounds you had been using up to then? But I don't know if that's just access to equipment. I think the, th- the biggest thing that changed was we got an emulator sampler. It was the first sampler we had. So boom, everything changed. We were just throwing everything into the, into the emulator. Bits of radio and looping our own voices. And so it was, um, I mean, I, I don't know about you know you guys, but when, you, so when you're quite off the keyboard based, Every time you get a new synth or a new keyboard, suddenly opens up a whole Pandora's box yeah. of new sounds, you know? Yeah, it's funny. I, I was with someone yesterday uh, who reminded me that uh, around that sort of mid-80s time, uh, he, he and I took a trip down to somewhere in Marylebone to view a Fairlight, and I was considering buying <laughs> <laughs> a ridiculous expense. I mean, people say... 50 grand. A Fairlight was a flat. Yeah, but 50 50 grand now is a lot of money. I mean, you know, you wouldn't dream of spending 50 grand on a piece of equipment now. People bought it then to get a three second sample. And and, uh, I remember... Originally, (laughs) monophonic. And I thought I... I thought I should be considering it. This could be my future. Uh, You know, we we, we didn't. We carried on making the kind of music we carried on. We we we'd, we'd established, if you like, but well, we uh, did buy a highlight. So uh, there you go. At, at, and at you made time, dazzle ships. Uh, it was after dazzle ships, actually. But um, the fairlight was um, basically. I think we we want we wanted a new toy, and, and we we, ha- we ended up having to. So, somebody from Avid had to come to Montserrat Studios with us for two months. It was the best <laughs> job of his life to operate them, show us how to use the Pro Tools. No, because um, you're, if you already had an emulator, the whole, yeah, cause the whole thing, it, I remember when the emulator came out, everyone was like, oh, thank God, mortals can get, get a sampler. It's for people who can't afford the Fairlight, really, wasn't it? Uh, well, uh, to my knowledge, I think the Fairlight no, came the Fairlight out was first. after the Fair, emulator. Fairlight, I mean, the yeah, Fairlight. Yeah, it was really? Okay, 81. well, listen... I discovered three years ago when we did a 40th anniversary book that my memory is shot to hell, so I will bow to your knowledge on this. Oh, well, this would be fun, then. <laughs> Who am I? Talking what of memory, let, yeah. me, let me unload this, Gary. Sorry. I've had this pun stuck in my head for 43 years, and uh, hopefully if I say it out loud to you, it'll finally go. It was something I read in NME, and I thought it was one of the funniest things I'd ever, I'd ever heard. And it, I can't remember what the context was, but they talked, it just said, the man who keeps hawks, who vacuums his flat at night, orchestral man hoovers in the dark. <laughs> <sighs> I'm so glad yeah, that you managed you. to get that off your chest, guy. I've been carrying that one around for about 42 <laughs> years, but at least you've now used that demon. <laughs> Fantastic. What, what I think... Um, but I think I was going to what I was going to say before I was so rudely interrupted by a pun was uh, was was the irony of getting to a stage in your career where you decide to spend fifty grand on a Fairlight, given that you began putting by and the whole thrill of early late seventies electronica was the simplicity of it, you know, the, the tape machine, the, you know, trying to get some electric circuit boards out of something to, to build us, you know, in a way, and Guy and I were saying this earlier, those early days were like punk. It was just except the instruments changed. It was still DIY. You're absolutely true. You're absolutely right. I mean, when we first started, um, Paul had a, um, Paul basically made a noise machine out of cannibalized parts from his aunt's radios and um, and I had I had my bass, which the only one I could afford with my 16th birthday right. money was left-handed. So I played a left-handed bass, right-handed. And to this day, 
you you'll know that I, I still play with the strings upside down on the right-handed bass. I couldn't wow. go back once I'd learned upside down, and um, it was just uh, yeah. That's, we were but that made your nuts all wrong. Do you mind? I have to have my nuts <laughs> cut and adjusted, darling. Yeah, well, yes. <laughs> Well, we're all at that age, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, you have to cut the nut and flip it over. But um, and of course, sometimes the e string jumps out of the nut when you hit it too hard. But yeah. Other than that, which people don't know what we're talking about, we go, "What are they on about now?" But yeah, but uh, no. But but Gary, you're right. Paul and I had next to nothing when we started, and we were just making weird noises in the back room at his mum's house when she was working in the news agents on a Saturday. And so, yeah, the irony of spending the same amount of money that my parents' house was valued at about six years later should not have been lost on us. But at the time, it was. Yeah, yeah. But when everyone looks back on what the classic OMD albums are, of course, it, it, it becomes, it's the simplicity that we all fell in love with as well, isn't it, in those early days. The naivety of the sound. Well, Paul and I basically taught ourselves to play by writing songs. And Electricity was the first actual song we wrote when we were 16 years old. So it was, um, you know, it was very simple. I mean, I can't play keyboards. I wrote Enola Gay. The melody to Enola Gay was like, you know, three-fingered claw hands on the chords, and the melody was played one finger at half speed. And I showed it to Paul and said, that's it. Can you play it faster? <laughs> you know, so it was yeah. really simple stuff. Because Electricity, I, th I saw you on a documentary where it's what one assumes is a sequencer is not it's you playing and just moving the octave knob right oh messages as that, you go messages, messages sorry messages Switch, yeah switching the octave. this is going ding 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 and then yeah, it took yeah, us yeah. about five For hours five to, minutes yeah <laughs> it took us five hours to get a five minute take that didn't have a glitch in it where i was moving the knob and then paul went to play the keyboard and went um andy it's not in g why why is it not Pitch selector was turned all the way up, so, so the song is in G sharp because we're like, fuck it, we're not recording that again. <laughs> we had to shift everything to G sharp. So to learn all the chords with black notes. Yeah, exactly. That was when Paul started using black yeah. notes. So, so I'm sort of interested, really, because I'm interested in that, in in how because obviously we ended up, you know, getting into electronica. Our first album was coming through, you know, the Blitz Club in London. You know, and at that time, you know. Being Boiled had already been made because the Human League was one of the records that was being played in that club by Rusty Egan. You know, you've got stuff happening. So Sheffield, obviously, and you've got Joy Division and Factory beginning. But what was your influence? I mean, where were you pre your first electronic outing? What was turning you on? I think I was one of those teenagers in the mid 70s that wanted to find something different. So the music I liked was, and I, you know, I talk to most people of our generation and they'll go, yes, tick that box. So, Roxy Music, David Bowie, The Velvet Underground, Brian Eno. Um, and that was, to me, everything... Lots else, of sage else. nodding happening here for our yeah, listeners. Just there's a lot of them. Kraftwerk <laughs> and Noi. And, you know, and to me, everything else was crap. That was all I wanted to listen to. And so not even an ounce of prog rock? No, no, no. I, I, by the time by the time I got to fifteen, I had decided that was completely self indulgent twaddle, and I wasn't interested in it. Um, so, so no, I, I was. I looked like a prog rocker. I had the big afro, and Paul looked like Roger Hodgson out of Supertramp. I mean, when we first started in seventy eight, we looked completely wrong. Peter Savile, the artist, said to us, 
your music sounds like the future, but God, you look like hippies. Get your bloody haircut. <laughs> so, but so, so you encountered Peter Savile very early on then, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. We we got into electronic music in 1975 before we knew other English people were doing it. I would go to Liverpool with my money from my um, paper rounds. I would buy whatever was in the German import bin take it back to Paul's house because Paul had made a stereo because he was studying electronics and I only had a mono record. Amazing. So this was the symbiotic relationship we had. And we would listen to this stuff at Paul's house from 75 onwards. And when he finally got a Vox Jaguar organ and electric piano, we wrote Electricity in 1976 when we were both 16. Wow. And then we wanted to play, but we thought, well, you know, even our mates thought what we were doing was rubbish. So we kind of modified it to play with our mates in a sort of rock version of ourselves called the Id until 1978 when, as you say, we were in Eric's Club in Liverpool and we had heard being boiled because we'd saw it in the end. There was no internet, so you only got your information from the music papers. We'd seen yeah. being boiled come out, we bought that, and then we were sta- in Eric's Club in the summer of 78 and Warm Leatherette was played by the DJ. And we went, yeah. what the hell is that? And I went over to Norman, the DJ, what is it? He said, it's English, it's new records, the normal. I just went to Paul, I said, right, that's it now. There is people in this country who have been into what we're into, and they're making records. We need to at least play a gig. And that's when we knocked on the door at Eric's Club and said, hi, Andy and Paul from Bandit Id, we did play here last uh, in the summer. Could we do a gig on your open mic Thursday night, you know, just the two of us um, doing our electronic music? And he went, yeah, what are you called? And we went, oh. Shit, we haven't got a name. You thought you'd tell us to bugger off. Uh, we'll get back to you on that. And then we went and invented orchestral maneuvers in the dark to do one gig. In, in, no one uh, invents orchestral maneuvers in the dark. I, I've never asked anyone where their name comes from, but I am intrigued now. Why? Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, let's go. The bottom line is we went back to my bedroom and I used to use my wall as a sort of noteboard of ideas and things. <clears throat> and we were like, right, listen, there's two of us will borrow. Your mum must have been thrilled. Yes, oh, I would listen. never allow such a thing, <laughs> <Yeah>. my children. <laughs> my, 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 my bedroom was full of oil paint and airfix models. And God knows, I was just, I, mean, I had the tiny box room six by seven above the staircase. Oh, yes. Um, but it was just, um, I looked on the wall and I, and I said, Paul, listen, there's you and me, because nobody else wants to play with us. We'll borrow your mate's tape recorder. We'll do one gig. We need a name that people go, well, they're different. Uh, so we just looked on the wall and went, oh, yeah, I was going to write a song called Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. I mean, this is how freaking pretentious I was. A song called Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. It was going to be war recordings and interfering radios and things. And um, went, all right, yeah, well, that'll do, that'll do. And so we went and told them the name. Listen, it could have been worse. Directly below Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark was something that we could have been called Margaret Thatcher's Afterbirth. <laughs> That wouldn't have worked. That's a very different band. That's a that's very a, yeah. That's a Dead Kennedys type. Yeah, throbbing <laughs> But were you, yeah, I take it you were going to the punk gigs, or were you just sitting at home listening to sort of the Second Side of Low or something? Or... Uh, oh, listen! Don't joke about that. Me, my mate John Floyd, and my first girlfriend Julia Neal used to go to his flat. He had no money. We had no money. By the time we'd taken the bus there, we get to his flat. We had no electricity, no gas, no heating, no food, but he'd lift the floorboard and he'd hot-wired his stereo into the light switch of the flat below. And as long as they kept the light on, we could listen to. And all we listened to 
was the second side of low. It was it, it tried with our floating livery. <laughs> or the second side of heroes, yeah. So it was exactly. second side of heroes, yeah, yeah. yeah, Mark, yeah. I can't remember that's how that's like that's life during wartime. I mean that's an extraordinary level of you know you tell yeah, young that, people yes. today. Exactly. Exactly. So so yeah, it was um we'd started our journey into kind of experimental electronic music um before we heard other bands from the UK. And then we just went, oh, wow, God, we better, we better start doing this. And, and um, the thing was that basically we, we got together to do one, one, one concert and the guys at Eric's Club said, oh, we've got a reciprocal relationship with this new club that's opened in Manchester called The Factory. So we went down there and supported Cabaret Voltaire. Wow. And we met this guy called Tony Wilson, who we knew as a TV presenter off the telly, you know, the local news station. And um, that that so we we then started doing doing gigs as orchestral maneuvers in the dark. But yeah, it was it was completely. I mean, it, it was a total accident. It was going to be a one-off, and then I was going to go to what I was supposed to go and do was I was supposed to go to Leeds to do fine art, and I took a gap year, and that was the year that the band started. Had I gone to Leeds, do you know who was there on the same course I would have been on? Green Gartside from Scritty. And Dave Ball and Mark Armand from Soft Cell. Oh, we all would have been doing art together in Leeds. It's amazing. Do you, do do because a lot of your sound isn't just synthetic. It's uh, it's also the sound of your bass guitar, which plays a very sort of melodic part. Can I ask? How, was that really an? Inf might, this might be two things. It might be a direct influence of Peter Hook, um, or it's also the fact you've got your bass upside down so your first strings are the very high ones yeah i mean i didn't meet hooky until um <clears throat> until the end of 78 when we started uh playing when we played a gig with joy division and then of course we, we got onto factory records and we did several gigs with joy division but no my my bass playing style came from um one not being very good so it's mostly kind of just straight eights it's da -da 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 -da. And I was going to say it's very it's it's very much bass playing what you do it's unlike cooking and, it's, you know. and it, yeah and and yes it's upside down because playing upside down um, it's a lot easier to do a split octave because you're reaching up instead of pulling down just think about it the other way around I'm I'm making that shape to go up rather than having to pull down. I know you can't even think about guitars with the strings. So I, I really, this is the. Mo I'd really like to go to the toilet now. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just leave you two bass I'm players not together. I'm not <laughs> I, I, no, I've got one left-handed story though. I tell you, which is that I, I the guy, you can't tell old, that. My old tech was. <laughs> <laughs> it's not my that one, tech, isn't it? I've heard him tell that well, before. Maltex Sid Price was looking after Paul McCartney, and once he said, "Come to the side of the stage at the end of a McCartney gig," and he went, "You got five minutes before I put it away," and he handed me the violin bass, right, the oh, one man. with with the candlestick park set list on it. And it was like, "Oh my god!" But it's like, but it's and and, and obviously I'm playing it right-handed. I'm thinking, "What can I do?" And so I managed to work out Day Tripper upside down in a wow. second. So yeah, so I have played Day right. Tripper up, but right. it was a, it's yeah. a complete can, mind melt. Can I just have a bit of a sidebar well, here really. about your, that roadie, Sid Price? Because there's yes. a funny story about his son, isn't there? He's got, yeah, his son is called Tom, who now also works for McCartney, and Paul calls him Half Price. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good, very good, very good, yeah. It's, uh, no, I mean, you, you, you could do that, because you're a real bass player. I, I, I never got more than just a sort of, I played bass, 
as a tuned percussion instrument. No, mate, but yeah, but you play and you sing. You play and you sing, which is the hardest gig in the world. It is. Well, and I dance weird as well. Try and do all three of those. Uh, boy, boy, do you? Because it's brilliant. Because you, I mean, you wrote the book, mate. Didn't you? On I, I don't know. There's something. No, I don't know. I, I know the style of dance that you're talking about. I think anyone. Was <laughs> Stuart McConey famously called it the trainee teacher dance. Yeah, <laughs> I prefer epileptic but, windmill. But but the thing is, and that wasn't uncommon. That dance uh, in, in when I first went to the Billies and the and I saw Electronica for the first time, as it were. There was a sort of slow jive that was going on on the dance floor, and. People did ad adopt this kind of, I don't know where this zeitgeist comes from, do you? You don't know why is it that everyone seems to be doing the same across the country. But um, Morphic morphic Resonance. Morphic Resonance. I never morphic heard of resonance. them. Did they bring out an it's, album? It's what, it's actually was the next one on the list for your band name, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> but it's, <laughs> definitely better than I, I think there was a thing of just trying, of just wanting not to be disco. Um, not wanting to be Saturday Night Fever. Even Rod Stewart yeah, exactly. wanted to be disco until he went disco. Um, yeah. It's just, yeah. Just, yeah, nobody wants to be for disco until they go disco. <laughs> yeah. But on the other hand, you were expressing that this you were making a form of dance music and it wasn't an intellectual exercise. Part of me, I think, was... I was aware that there was only two of us on tape recorder. Paul was static and a lot of people... You know, their attitude was, oh, electronic music is, is conceptual and intellectual. You can't dance to it. And I wanted to prove that you could. I mean, as Paul says, I've spent 44 years overcompensating for his static performance. But, you know, it's, it is what it is. Let's talk about Winston. Oh, yes. the technical. I mean, Winston was very, you know, everyone, you know, it was in all the interviews when you first started off this tape recording. Does right, Winston yeah. still exist? Yes, Winston is actually in the Museum of Liverpool behind glass, uh, which wow. makes me feel very old. Um, you should explain he, what he it is. Owned, yeah. Winston, the tape recorder, was owned by Paul Humphrey's mate, Paul Collister, who, had set, who created a studio in his garage. So he became your manager, he, right? He became, yeah, well, of course he became our manager because A, he had a studio, B, he had tape recorders, and C, he worked for Vision Hire, so he had a van. I mean, he ticked all the boxes for an early manager, didn't he? <laughs> you know, that's how you become a manager. Um, so we, we, we ended up, um, basically, we, we put a load of backing tracks onto Winston, the tape recorder, because none of our mates wanted to play with us. And we went and started playing gigs with Winston, sat there in the middle, like where the drummer would be, on a plinth with his wheels going around. Of course, these, this is the time when, you know, synthesizer music was starting to come out of the box. The Musicians' Union did not like synthesizers. No, they thought right. it was taking jobs from up from real musicians, you know, that you could have a string section on synthesizers. So they made these um, they made these stickers, big yellow stickers called, were saying, keep music live. That's, so we yeah. stuck them on the pools of Winston so they go keep music live going around and Fantastic. But hang on, you're saying none of your mates would play with you? That sounds a bit... No, well, they, they, they just thought that what we were doing was, you know, they were into Genesis and the Eagles and Pink Floyd and, and we were into Kraftwerk and Noy and Brian Eno and they, were just, they just didn't get it. No. I, guess, I guess the... Um, in my, if my, I, my, how my memory works with this one... 
Human League also had a tape recorder at the back. Was that was that your inspiration, or was you the first? I no, I mean we it, for us it was just an element of practicality. I mean, apparently there's supposed to have been a long a forty year feud between me and Phil Oakey about who came first and who was inspired by what. I find, I, and you know what? I didn't meet Phil Oakey in person until about four years ago. Wow. And I went right up to him and said, Phil, apparently we hate each other. How are you, mate? <laughs> he went, fuck off. <laughs> I think the thing was, there's no disputing, the Human League made a record before we did. Yeah. And hearing mm -hmm. being boiled, Paul and I went, shit, we've been sitting in your mother's back room for two years. We need to go and play a gig and do something because now other people have actually gone ahead of us. So Human League's Making Being Born made us go, right, we're going to be a band. But we had written Electricity two years before that. Electricity came out as a single. And and then we, what I think people say is, yeah, they started before you, but you had hits before them, so Phil was pissed off. And I don't really think that was the case. But but yeah, but there's there's such a fine line. It's like the history of punk in like who started first, who inspired who? Now we we played, you know, we played that club two days before you did. We're the authentic, yeah. you know. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's that's the thing, isn't it? As you get older and time changes, and you, you forget that, that like just just how quickly everything was moving when you're young you know it's, it's like you said it's literally a matter of days between events yeah. now it's years you know 10 years well, it, it, it is an hour age it takes me years that's what i mean yeah yeah but, yeah. uh, but we, we, we want to see stone though, ep epitaphs laid there don't we saying here this week a, a, a yeah. band played with a with a table yeah. what what happened was after the second gig where we went to the factory club and we met tony wilson we he he used to have bands on Granada reports. We we met him. We you know we met him at his club. Why don't we send him? Because so we sent a cassette to say, can we get on the telly? We didn't even know he was starting Factory Records. Now this we heard that there was an an apocryphal story, and we thought it well, that was all it was apocryphal. Four years ago, we met his first wife called Lindsay Reed, and we said. Is there any truth in the story about the shopping bag in the car? So, oh no, it's true. I got in the car, Tony picked me up, and there was a shop, plastic shopping bag full of cassettes sitting in the footwell. And she went, all right, love, what, what's with the cassettes? I'm taking them to the tip. They're reject cassettes of people who wanted to get on the TV or on the new label. She put her hand in the bag, pulled out a cassette and went, orchestral maneuvers in the dark, that's a weird name. And he went, oh, they played the club last week, shit. Harry Scouse's electronic music, not authentic, not rock. She put it on, it was electricity. And she went, that's a hit, love. And he went, no, 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 that's a hit. So apparently taps her patronising on the thigh and goes, all right, darling, I'll sign in for you. And that is how you get us a record deal. You're pulled out of the bag on the way to the tip. It's a true story. Wow, wow. That, that's, if if that's that great. bag had literally landed differently in the footwell, it would have been another cassette. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. But, but, but what then, year was it? What year? What year was this? Um, what, term, that, what, what month that, did electricity? I'm trying was, to ask this question. That was. Gary's determined to get a definitive timeline here. I, I, I am um, because cut, cut a long story short is coming up. We sent that tape <laughs> to Tony Wilson in November '78. Wow. Bravo. And 
the factory released the electricity in April 79. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist. To find out if it's right for you. This episode of Rock on Tours is sponsored by AG1, the daily nutrition supplement. AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 vitamins, minerals, and other vital ingredients like gut-friendly bacteria, antioxidants, and much more. Just one scoop of AG1 daily has all the nutrients you need to support your mental performance, energy levels, heart health, and immune system. To be honest, it's pretty vital stuff for us because when you've got a life on the road and you're short of time or you're too busy to plan and prepare healthy meals, you're getting your podcast together, you're being shouted at and it's just a nightmare. AG1 gives me all the good stuff and helps keep my energy levels where I need, ready for showtime or doing the podcast and with a nice vanilla taste. It keeps me focused, feeling good, feeling healthy with its daily dose of vitamin C and zinc. And it's so easy to use. Just one scoop a day gives me over 70 carefully selected ingredients. Simple. Trusted by Olympians, F1 drivers and the rock on tours. So if you want to replace your multivitamin and more, start with AG1. Try AG1 and a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription. Go to drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. That's drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. Check it out. What is interesting is the fact that, because we, we now know in retrospect that like Joy Division were totally into this whole Krautrock thing as well. So, But all, no one knows that anyone else is into you it. You can it tell by their like. drumming, most of yeah. all, I always Yeah, feel. exactly. Yeah, Steve Even Martin's totally, drumming is yeah. unbelievable, yeah. Uh, the very distinctive, very distinctive drumming, and uh, well, because so then we get on Factory Records and we're doing all these concerts with with Joy Division, and, and me and Ian Curtis are looking at each other going, "You dance like me, and I dance like you. That's weird." Of course, <laughs> so, of course, of course. Um, but yeah, so we, we we did quite a few quite a few gigs with, with, with Joy Division. How was how was Ian at that period? How did you get on with him, or you, was there a sense of? They just seem to be a bunch of down-to-earth guys who, you know, they made this strange music. I mean, first of all, you've got to remember, 
we started playing with them before Martin Hannett produced their first album. Right. Hannett took a slightly more punky, rough band and imposed his vision on them that turned them into the Joy Division that were recorded. And you know, when they first heard his mixes of the first album, Unknown Pleasures, he had distilled it down to the primary colours that he thought it should be, which was the drums and the bass and the vocals, and put he put on his guitar through effects out left and right, and it sounded, it was Hannett's vision more than Joy Division's vision, I think, initially. They were more mm -hmm. punky, than he turned them into something that they became, and I think that they didn't like the mix to begin with, but everybody else went, oh, my God, this is the new vision, this is the new you, and then they adopted it. Yeah, because wow. Hannett, Hannett's such an extraordinary character, isn't he? I mean, obviously, you, 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 working with him yourself, I mean... Yeah, he, he did an amazing job on Almost, which was the B-side of the lecture. So he didn't like what he did to the A-side. He made it too washy. But, I mean, you know, the first time we were ever in a real recording studio, we were in Strawberry in Stockport. And it was, you know, you know what small labels used to take downtime? So you had an overnight session. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever do those? Yeah, and yeah. You were, working, you were working from, like, midnight till 10 a.m. before the next next day's session came in. And so sometime around about four in the morning, Hannah, who was stoned off his tree, just climbed under the desk and fell asleep. And Paul and I were like, will you wake him up? No, you wake him up. What are we going to do? Basically woke up. Yeah. Was he on Camembert Electric guy? Do you know? Was he? Did he was. Was, was he on? Uh, was he Gong? No, you're thinking uh, Howlett. Han Hannett, not Howlett. Mike okay. Howlett was the bass player in Gong, yeah. In Gong, yes. He, yes. He by default became our producer because he was the boyfriend of Carol Wilson, who was the head of Indus Records, the label that signed us. That's right. Yeah. I'm not always an expert, you know. I get my some things get. No, no, listen, I, I listen, I've listened to some of your podcasts and, and, and some some of your knowledge, Garage, particularly from the late seventies, is frightening. I, the one that you did with Paul Simonon was like, whoa <laughs> you were pulling out nah, but, but like, Guy and I lived and breathed that, you know. Yeah, yeah. I also didn't expect your conversation with, 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 with Paul Simonon turned turned up with Gustav Metzger. I'm like, well, I know him. How did that come from that conversation? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For those who don't know, yeah, kind of auto-destructive art. That's of, right, yes. One of the most amazing things about that first album is the cover. We've got to say that. I know that's not what musicians want to hear, but let's face it, that that, that Savile cover was, you know, with the die cast and the colours and everything about it was were, were quite well, beautiful. It's very craft work, I have it. to say. You can say it. 50% of the records were sold because people were buying the cover. <laughs> so absolutely, it was it was genius. Obviously, just like Joy Division's 12-inch single, um, the manufacturing costs of it. Do you, do you remember the days of um, oh, the old uh, school yard? Yeah. What was it? What was it called? It was it was oh, two words that put fear into all musicians: packaging deduction. Packaging oh, deductions. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. yeah. Uh, that that the cost of cutting those die cuts um, just crippled us with um with, 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 with earning money yeah, I, I, I tell you a funny story in that in the years later when streaming happened and and it, that was all people were doing we realized we were still being charged packaging deduction mm -hmm. by the record company so were we, we yeah i know we we, we which we've since sorted out but they carried that <laughs> they those those people carried that on listen well why wouldn't know, they nobody ever audited nobody ever 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 audited their record company and found out that the record company had accidentally overpaid the artist. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, 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 
Yeah. Every excuse one, to screw you, you know? Yeah. Uh, one thing I'd like to ask about, Andy, is the inspiration for your songwriting, it's, uh, lyrically, because, I mean, you you like big historical themes often, didn't you? And I mean, do you like, especially, I mean, I, with the fullness of time, obviously the sentiment of writing a you know clearly big anti-war song but actually managing to write a quite a jaunty pop song about possibly the most heinous war crime of all time how did you feel about that at the time right behind me you see there you see the the, the, the photographs behind me that that Not is really. that's the crew yeah. of the anola gay they're signed photographs okay. of the crew of the anola gay signed um wow. signed by the crew yeah because paul and i started the band accidentally we therefore had carte blanche in terms of what we were going to do musically and lyrically. And I desperately, desperately did not want to write what I considered to be cliche lyrics. I wanted to write about things that I was interested in. Or if I'm going to express love, and you know, the world survives on love, that's what makes the world go around. Don't do it in a cliche way. Do it in a way that is you trying to express your own feelings and often with, with, with metaphors that are not the usual metaphors. So, But, yeah, you're right. I mean, I would write about – I was fascinated by warfare, not because I believe it's a beautiful and wonderful thing, because I'm fascinated mm. by how moral standards are completely turned 180 on their head. You know, mm. things – you're encouraged to do things at times of warfare that you get arrested for in times of peace. And so if you're interested, as I've already said, I had all the ethics models. I was a geek. Paul was a train collector. I was an air, uh, ethics collector. Um, if you're interested in aeroplanes and warfare, you invariably come to Enola Gay, which is the name of the yeah. airplane, the atom bomb on Hiroshima. Yeah, yeah. I had the FXB 29 Super Fortress, yeah. You had one. Oh, I, I I never made one. I it, was Revel. No, it was Revel. It was Revel. It was Revel. I think Revel did the B-29. Oh, I think. Okay. Yeah. Well, maybe that's why I didn't get it, because the shop I went to didn't have them. They only had airfics. Anyway, let's not, go, let's not go down that wormhole. <laughs> you know what I think it is, to a, certain, to a large extent. Gary, because... you can tell he's excited. He just knocked his microphone over. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. That's not his microphone. Now he's Don't stop me, on, stop me on the Schwimmwagen. Um, no, listen, I think, I, think, um, I, I think that we were the first generation not to be conscripted to not have to face proper war. So we had we had the, this piece to, to, to make a judgment from. But at the same time, the TV was full of war films, documentaries, World at War. You know, we were constantly seeing these black and white. And of course they were black and white. They didn't even look like today. They look like some mythological past images. And, you know, and I think we wanted to put ourselves on a bigger heroic landscape as our fathers stood on. And I think that tended to be the kind of lyrics everyone wanted to write about, you know. I think, I think Gary's point is, is very salient, though. I mean, all of our parents had memories of the war and recollections of their lives would have been totally dominated by, by the war. Um, and, you know, the centre of Liverpool and Birkenhead and I'm sure London, you know, there were still places that were vacant lots where bombs had dropped and nothing. Where I played. Oh, yeah, totally. prefabs. Like, all my mates lived in prefabs. Yeah. That's good. yeah. So... So, yes, but, but, but then you're also right that, you know, in the 1980s, we were still very much in the Cold War. I was sampling the shortwave radios for the Dazzle Ships album uh, and putting them in. I mean, I, I can actually recall we, we did ask um, the Voice of America if we could use their call sign. And they said, no, we've listened to your album. It's communist propaganda because most of the radio stations in Europe were communist stations. 
Um, so they said, unless unless you put on, you know, a, a balance of, 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 of pieces from, no, I, th- I think they called it democratic stations, but capitalist stations basically uh, against the communist stations that we won't, wow. we won't, we won't, we can't use our our signal. But it was the thing. Going back to Enola Gay, I, I was to the day he died. Paul Tibbetts, the pilot, believed he did the right thing. He killed 150,000 people with one bomb, believing he saved five million. You know, and and that's that is a moral dilemma that he was certain he made the right decision over. So certain that he named the aeroplane after his lovely mother. Do we know what she thought about that? <laughs> I she was probably very proud. I don't know. She probably thought he'd done the right thing. I mean, that's why the, there's a line in the song: "Is is mother proud of little boy today?" which has about four meanings because the bomb was... Yeah, of course, the bomb was Little Boy, yeah. 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 Oh, that, that's the bit I always got. I was just the bomb reference, so... I just want to talk about your influence on upon other people now, really, because, you know, when you listen to Souvenir, it's the Pet Shop Boys' entire career. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and, 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 and I don't think that... Uh, and I'm sure that um, they would admit to that influence. Does it get you a little bit that sometimes when you're pushing that door open, it's easier for other people to go through? Um, do you know what? Or if, or you've sold the, so many records, it, it doesn't really at, matter. At the time, yeah. at the time, you know, you do get fed up and pissed off and you think, God, you know, we've been doing this for how many years? And then somebody else, mm-hmm. I mean, the weirdest thing was, you know, the Human League were a bit like, where did you come from? And then all of us, went to Gary Newman, where the hell did you come from? And he had two number ones in 79. Yeah, you know, yeah, we yeah. I remember Gary, Gary Newman off. turning up at the Blitz Club and no one talking to him. He's too commercial. <laughs> He's commercialising the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it was, that was, that was, you know, it goes back to these fine lines, you know, you did this two days before us. But yeah. it, 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 it was just, um, I, I, yeah. I don't know. I think, I can remember doing an interview. Um, uh, you must have done photographs with Eric Watson. Yeah, lots. Yeah, he did one of our yeah. famous album sleeves. He was like a yeah. So we were doing a smash hit, and there's two things I remember about that. One, Eric uh, Neil wanted to interview us separately, so I was wandering around the studio, and I went to this light box, and I switched it on, and uh, I was looking at these photographs, and I said to Eric, "Oh, she's cute. Who's that?" And he went. Oh, some dancer from New York who thinks she can sing. Oh, it's, it's, yeah. Madonna. <laughs> Just before she was world famous. Um, and the other thing was, Neil, when we parted, um, Neil said, well, this is probably one of my last interviews for Smash It's because I've got my own band and I'm releasing a record soon. And, you know, you hear it all the time and we just went, oh, well, you know, good luck with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he released West End Girls a month later and boom, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's 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 a sin. I think was one of their was their first, wasn't it? I think probably. I don't know. We should get no. It was, uh, it was actually yeah. um um uh, 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 the one about let's make lots of money. That was actually the first oh, yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. But it's it's funny how these things happen. I mean, you know, it's weird talking about circles. We were in Eric since the summer of '78 when we heard Warm Leatherette on Mute Records. Yeah, that inspired us to create the band. Then seven months later, no, no. Six months later, we released Electricity on Factory Records, 
these guys in a club in Basildon hear it and go, right, let's bin the guitars and let's get synths. And I know this is true because Vince told me it's true. And what do they do? They start at Depeche Mode. And who do they sign to? Mute Records. Complete yeah. the circle. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. Um, Daniel Miller was Mute Records. I just... Yeah. What, yes, do exactly, we know about, yeah. what do we know about Daniel? Because he was def definitely a, an incredible pioneer, wasn't he? Oh, he absolutely was. Well, I mean, as, as well as um, the normals first, the single Warm Leather at TVOD, which is seminal. I mean, people talk mm -hmm. about, you know, Human League, OMD, Pet Shop Boys, Depeche Mode. To me, that's that's the one. That's the one that was the seminal yeah. track that changed the world. Um, but yeah, mute, because Mute Records, really. I mean, Daniel then really kind of largely gave up writing and just collected the most incredible group of artists on his label. I think, the, you know, the, the, the Comatines. Do you remember the Comatines? He was the Comatines as well. Did you mean Long no. distance information. Oh, yeah. Because in a way, that sums it up. It was a kind of, it was garage meets bubblegum meets electronica, wasn't it, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did it, you it, meet it, him? Doing it, electronic garage cover versions of Chuck Berry and pretend, pretending to be four teenagers. <laughs> but it was Daniel Miller. Because <laughs> you had, you actually, didn't you had a, you had a problem with Souvenir as a song for quite a while, didn't, did you not, Andy? Yeah, I, Enola Gay was the first song that Paul and I wrote not as a duo, I wrote it on my own. Mm -hmm. Because he, he, he kept turning down jobs from the Dole office and they finally just went, right, you can't turn this job down, you've got to go on hod carry down at the rebuilding of the local baths or you're not getting your Dole money. <laughs> so he wasn't he wasn't at home that week and I wrote it all again. Next album comes out, the first song he writes on his own uh, pretty much is, is Souvenir. And in the same way that, you know, he had to adopt somebody else's baby in Enola Gay. I had to learn to adopt Souvenir and learn to love it. And to begin with, yeah, I thought it was drippy and wet. And I I kept trying to put punk bass lines onto it to rip it off a bit and change it, which was, was, of course, were totally inappropriate. Six months later, when I kind of got over myself, I just like, God, this is gorgeous, romantic, dreamy stuff. You know, why did I hate it so much? But it was just, it wasn't my baby. Who produced the record? Uh, Mike Howlett. He did that Gone. one because it, it's, it's, it's a studio right? creation, isn't it? He did that thing like, like the old 10cc thing with the vocals. He did that thing with the with the synth, didn't he? Where he was basically That's playing it on right. the desk. He was playing it absolutely on the mixing right. desk. A guy, a guy called Dave Hughes, who had been uh, paid keyboards for us on our first tour before Martin Cooper joined the band. Um, he'd been recording a local choir, and he came in to Paul and said, "I've got these." tapes these quarter inch tapes of this choir warming up singing certain notes i want to make loops out of them so we'd like make our own like mellotron and so they made these tape loops where they literally with, with pencils and revots and several pencils around the room they made a loop <laughs> and paul and dave played onto the two inch tape about you know six or seven different notes of this small choir tuning up and 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 of course, because they're tape looping and the, the tape is tightening and so it's kind of like it's fluctuating and wobbling. Mm -hmm. So it's got this kind of really weird eeriness to it. And then Paul just made the song up to just, but literally just pushing the notes up going, ah, and he just, just, yeah, just made this sequence and then wrote the song on top of it. But that's, yeah, that's, that's how you, that's how we made records. We just, we did everything you're not supposed to do. And the bass drum on Souvenir is a rotom. Um, Outrageous. 
Yes, <laughs> yeah, we we, um, we we just. Uh, but I, I think that was that was the good thing is that that Mike Howler actually kind of let us do what we wanted to do. He was just there to try to make sure that it sonically was recorded well. Because our first album that we did ourselves in our own studio really sounds like Garage Synth Band because we had no clue what we were doing. We just we just thought they're going to give us thirty grand and then we're going to get dropped because nobody's going to buy our record. So let's build a studio. So we built our own studio and recorded ourselves and. Um, Amazingly, yeah, the first album went gold. So. Did Howlett uh, produce all of Architecture and Morality? Howlett produced Enola Gay and the second album that Enola Gay came off and Me- Messages, our first single. We re-recorded Messages and that became our first hit off the first album. But we decided that we we wanted to be on our own again. So when we got into the studio for the third album, Architecture and Morality, we right. just did it with Richard Mannering, who was the yeah, you're up in the ma- you're up, in, you're up in the manor, weren't you, in Oxford? Yeah, and, and Richard Mannering was the house engineer at the manor, so we liked working with him. When Mannering, we of the manor. <laughs> Mannering of the manor, yeah. Oh, um, Mannering of the manor. Mannering of the manor. Sounds very, very. Did you ever work up there, guys? It was a fantastic, fantastic manor. Richard Branson. It's fantastic. So uh, what I thought felt really weird was was that is that so much of it is manor and so little of it is recording studio. Yeah, the barn, yeah. basically. You know what I mean? It's just this little studio tacked yeah. onto this big house. So wasn't it, didn't it, it became about because of uh, Tubular Bells, didn't it? Wasn't, didn't yeah, the Goldfield record there originally? I think that, that um, Richard Branson created the studio for Mike Oldfield to do Tubular I mean, basically, yeah. Tubular Bells created Virgin Records. Yeah. You know that that basically just blew the wheels off things, and, and Virgin went went mega after, after Tubular Bells. Yeah, that's that's where that's where Oldfield recorded Tubular Bells. Or, no one ever, no one ever talks you, about Tubular Bells. You guys Bells. must have been working class boys. Did you not find it really weird going to like a big Oxford country manor with a full sized oh. billiard table and fireplaces and and, and, and and Irish wolfhounds and just feel like I shouldn't be here? What am I doing here? I'm an imposter. No, mate. No. we were aspirational working class guys (laughs) that was uh, okay i used to find that about studio all the all all the any studio the first studios i went into are were just another plane of existence just the Mm. fact that you know someone someone offers you a cup of coffee is like (laughs) i actually quite liked having the pool tables and that around because at least you know some people in the bank could just wander off there instead of deciding to chip in too many ideas <laughs> there, well, there speaks a songwriter why don't you know, fucking play pool don't tell me what to do with my song yeah 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 exactly exactly um yeah i mean when you but when you went on to dazzle ships you used it's interesting listening to dazzle ships and i know this is where we began the interview but it's not what you'd say is a Rhett Davis album, is it? You know, Rhett oh has, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, his production with Roxy Music, you know, it's what we know as being, you know. It's he's what, the man who, he changed my life. He's the man who changed my life. He tell produced me, Ice House. He produced Ice House. Yeah. And um, because Ivor used to, was so much like Brian Ferry. It's like the label were either going, okay, if he's going to do Brian, then let's do it properly. Or it was like, let's get him off this Brian thing and get Brian's producer in. So he'll just go, oh, come off it. But what happened was, was that Rhett just said, you know what? You're perfect for Brian and stole me. Um, is that right? Well, yeah. And, so and you, that's what I did. You, you well, which is where I met Davis, David then. Gilmore, which is where I met Pat Leonard. It literally changed my whole life. So Rhett Davis changed I, I my whole I thought meeting life. me changed your life. Well, it did, but in other ways. <laughs> <laughs> but but going, going back to our guest guy, 
Yes. Uh, yeah, you know. Sorry, who is it? Who is it? Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> sorry, Andy. I'm just uh, saying, Brett Davis yeah. and... No, and but I'm just saying, yes. No. We, I was a huge Roxy Music fan in the 70s. Took me a little while to adjust to the smoother sound that they had in in in, mm -hmm. uh, in the eighties, but once we got into it, we were like, okay, so who's made this record? Rhett Beautiful Davis. sounding, right? Let's get him. But yeah, Rhett Davis must have gone. Why the hell have you got me in to mix an album that's got loads of radio samples and speak and spell and you know when I'm making smooth rock with Bob Clearmountain mixing it? Bob Clearmountain ain't gonna mix you know, <laughs> speaking clocks from around the world and make it sound any different. <laughs> so, yeah, Rhett, um, I remember what we paid, Rhett. My God, that was a lot of money. Um, <laughs> but that that may have so added to it. But but what was the creative friction like? Do you know what? I don't recall creative friction, actually. Uh, what, I, what I did like was that we did go and do some recordings in Phil Manzanera's studio. Oh, his uh, the round one down in Richmond. Round white building, amazing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. and and I remember because you know at that time I was like twenty three, twenty four, and I lived and breathed music every second of every day. Mm -hmm. And I was I was saying to I was saying to Phil, I said, so it's really kind of you to let us use your studio, are, are, are you, but you're not on tour, you're not using it. So no, no, I only go in there once or twice a week, you know. So what do you rest the time? Well, I go to London for lunch or talk to the accountants. I was just like. If I had a studio at my house, I wouldn't let anyone <laughs> I was like, what a different world he's from. How did that happen? You know, he's got a he's got a huge studio in his house now. It's huge. Yeah, it's, yeah. It is his house, in fact. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he lives in his studio. Well, he doesn't. But that's his London place. But yeah, it's fabulous. But it was, yeah, it, it was amazing. No, it's strange. But did you? Enough. But did you find Rhett, Rhett, Did did Rhett contribute to your creative process? Did you find anyway? No, Rhett was just trying to get the record that was full of weird shit to sound as professional as possible, struggling mm -hmm. through the stuff we were giving him. And he did. He made he made it sound he made it sound pretty good given the weird stuff that we were we were trying to do. Well also because the title like, comes you know, the title comes from talking about, you know, listen, I I'm as pretentious as as the next pretentious man but uh, but, uh, but you know dazzle ships being that painting by um it's edwards wadsworth isn't it it's who 1919 yes. sort of vorticist because he invented camouflage and he came back to our war thing. oh right basically yeah essentially in the first world war these artists went to the ministry of warfare or whatever and said we've got an idea and it's utterly counterintuitive Instead of painting ships grey to make them fade into the, 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 the darkness of the, of the grey sky and the grey Atlantic or whatever, why don't you paint them in fractured stripes and different colours so that the U-boats through their periscopes can't work out how big they are, how far away they are, and which direction they're going in? Uh, and it's just, it's, 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 you know, why don't you paint an elephant pink so it's harder to fire at? You know, it was just, it's totally counterintuitive. Counter but... Two and a half thousand ships were painted in these bonkers stripes. And I had never heard of it until Peter Savile came to me and said, I have seen this painting by Wordsworth, um, Dazzle Ships at Liverpool Dry Dock. I want to do a vorticist sleeve. Can you call the album Dazzle Ships and write a song called Dazzle Ships? Was, the tail was wagging the dog and I went for wow. it like in sync. We went to a car museum with Nick Mason, didn't we, Guy? 
uh, on the last tour in America, and there's a car there that's, that's painted right, yeah. in this Porsche, bizarre yeah. black and white stripes. I didn't understand what it was. It made, made your eyes go funny. And it was apparently to stop people taking photographs of it or, or when they're test driving it. on tracks. Yeah. So, so, or it's more so if you do photograph it, you can't get a clear idea of what the mm -hmm. design is. That's right. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's, I don't think they could ever prove that it worked or it didn't work, but, but they, they did it to a lesser degree in the, in the Second World War. But, um, yeah, it was, it was, you know. They were to the Ministry of Defence and said, we've got this mad idea. And in 80 yeah. years' time, everyone in nightclubs is going to be wearing stuff that looks like this. <laughs> listen, you see it. Listen, there's, there's G-Shock watches that came out in Dazzle yeah. Stripes. There's, you know, there's all sorts of strange things. that. Um, it's but, like the Jazz uh, Age. It seemed an appropriate thing to do at the time. Uh, you know, the third, the third album had been massive, and we were just doing what we wanted to. I mean, Souvenir and Made of Orleans and Joan of Arc didn't sound like an old game. We just changed direction again, and this time, you know, 40 years ago, the, the record-buying public went, eh, no thanks. You're more <laughs> than 15 minutes ahead of the fashion, as Warhol would have said. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Made of Orleans and Joan of Arc. <laughs> yeah, discussed. <laughs> <laughs> Disc <yeah. laughs> well, I wrote Made of Orleans first, and I didn't think it was working. Paul fished out the demo a few years ago, and now I know why I didn't think it was working, because it was bloody awful. But... When we were packing up to go down to the manor, Malcolm Holmes, our drummer, said, are we doing that other? Because I, so I wrote another Joan of Arc because I was determined I wanted to write a song called Joan of Arc. So I wrote Joan of Arc, not Made of Orleans. And Mal said, are we doing the Waltz one? I said, no, 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 I've got another one. He said, no, let me play drums on it. I'll make it a hit. So I let him play drums on it, and it was a hit. Um, so ah. we, we, we released, I think the record company thought that the Waltz version was going to be the bigger hit. They needed to take time for let souvenir to fall out of the charts in Europe because the European charts meant more slowly than the British charts. Mm -hmm. So we needed to release something in between for the UK. So they went, well, why don't we release Joan of Arc? So okay, that, that got to number five. And then they said, right, now we're going to go with the other Joan of Arc, but you can't call it that. And I went, oh, no, 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 no. This is brilliant. You've fallen into my trap now. We're going to release two consecutive songs that are different songs but the same name. That's really the best of the music industry, of, isn't it? And we argue and argue. We say, no, no, Andy, you can't. People will think they've already bought it. No, but that's the whole point. We're going to screw the industry, but you're going to screw yourselves. Oh, <laughs> I was so determined to fight the machine, you know. In the end, I succumbed to having my arm twisted, and it, it, it was made of all on the Wall Street. But yeah, it, it, I, we, I was, we have to, we have to we actually have to wrap up today a little bit, which is really really annoying. But, yeah, uh, um, but but this is actually my fault because I scheduled it later because I had an appointment. So this is all my fault. I'm really sorry. Well, listen, I'm it's great talking to you, Andy. It's so great to talk to other musicians. And thank you for doing your research and knowing your history. And it's, you know, yeah, we could have gone on forever and ever. We could have talked about more of your stuff. And I just... Well, maybe we'll do another and, one. I know that, you know, Gary and I have met once or twice. I remember we were... we were uh, You were talking to Steve Harley at the Ivan Novello's years ago. And I walked up and said, I'm really sorry to inter interrupt. Just want to say, Steve, I, I have a scrapbook of yours. I was a huge fan of where I was talking. Steve Harley looks at me like, fucking weirdo. And I walked off... <laughs> I yeah. subsequently got him to sign my scrapbook and he did believe me. But uh, Yeah, we'll have to um, get Steve on because we're all big fans. That's not very yeah. Kraut Rock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So listen, guys, thank you so are much. Are you going out on the road? Just want to say, are you going out on the road? 
anything coming? Any shows? Uh, we got, yeah, we got festivals all summer, and um, next year we are talking of Kraut Rock. We are releasing what is probably going to be our final OMD studio album that was written in this room because I was bored off my brains by COVID, the creative power of boredom once again, and it's called Bauhaus Staircase. Come Gorgeous. on, what a Gorgeous. title! Love it. Still got it. Still got it. <laughs> Thank you, Andy. All the best. Bye, guys. Thank you so much. We're going to wrap up here fast because uh, our lovely yeah. producer Ben Jones has to leave. Uh, so thank you to Ben and um, thank yeah. you to everyone. Thank you to everyone. We could have gone on for ages. Maybe we should get him back. I don't know. Yeah, it was great. yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Uh, good night from me and good night from them. Rock on Tears is produced by Gimme Sugar Productions for Warner Music Group UK.